If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 25. We're getting into the home stretch of this little section on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have gone for now 13 weeks straight through the book of Matthew up to this point. We have one more week in the Sermon on the Mount next week, and then we will take a little bit of a break to then focus on the Old Testament and to do an overview of the Old Testament so that we can understand why it is uh, so important, why it actually does matter. It's not something that we should just put to the side, maybe just teach a few of the stories as uh, moralistic tales for our kids, but rather the Old Testament is vital. It is one of those things that Jesus himself quoted from over and over. All of Jesus's quotes of the scriptures are the Old Testament. And so we should value that and love that. Um, but back to Matthew. We've worked through the Sermon on the Mount so far over the past uh, few weeks. This is our fourth, I believe, out of five. And Jesus takes this time. This is his first sermon that we see in all of Matthew. This is his first real teaching that we see in all of Matthew. And what Jesus is doing is that he actually is going uh, and flipping all of these expectations that the people have on their heads of what it means to be good and righteous. And so he starts in the first part by uh, where we see the Beatitudes, what we know as the Beatitudes, that Jesus says, blessed are those who blank. And he uses words like blessed are the meek, which are the humble, or uh, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who uh, mourn. And that goes against so many of these things that we wish were true. Often we think, we look at those who have more than us, more money. We look at those who have uh, great favor, either with the government or with other people. And we say, oh man, they must be really blessed. But Jesus is turning that around and he's saying, blessed are those who have these negative experiences because they want what the Lord wants more than anything else. And so he starts to introduce us to who these citizens of the kingdom of heaven really are. And he starts there by saying, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the ones who are willing to face persecution for the, name, for the sake of the name of Christ, those are the ones who will be the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The ones that the world looks on and rejects. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author goes through naming all of the people and all of the things that happened to them, how they were killed. And he states this, the world was not worthy of them. Oh, how we should desire for that to be said of us in the ways that we love and honor the Lord. And then he continues by calling his followers salt and light. And salt is something that enhances flavor. And if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? And in the same way, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet there's nothing salty about us, nothing that rubs off on the people around us, what good is it to say that we're followers of Jesus? And he calls us light. You don't hide a light on the hill. So in the same way, Jesus' followers should not be hiding themselves away, just going home and shutting their door and not interacting with neighbors, not interacting with family members, seeking for them to know and love uh, God, the Lord, their creator, so that they may know true life. And then he continues by eliminating anyone's expectations that they could possibly be a good person in their own rights. He's, uh, he looks at how our actions, uh, how our actions condemn us, 
how our, or even our lack of actions, our lack of negative actions still condemns us. In saying that I have never murdered someone, Jesus says, okay, that's all well and good. But if you hated someone, then you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus makes it harder. He makes it clear that we, none of us, are without sin. And none of us stand righteous in the sight of God. He goes through and he continues to say, you've, said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And maybe you think you're great on that. You would never slept with someone who wasn't your spouse. I tell you, if you look on someone with lust in your eyes, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with that person. And then he says, oaths are evil. If you swear on anything, you're committing sin against the Lord. And that you must just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because you have no authority to swear upon the things that you, you were swearing upon. And so throughout that entire section, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. No one is righteous. And he ends it by saying, you must be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. So then he continues into what we started to look at last week. There are these two paths that we could take. We could take a path that leads, that looks good in our eyes, but really is actually rejecting the father. He starts by focusing on these good spiritual seeming things, these things of praying, the things of giving of your money, the things of fasting. He looks at these three items and he says, when you do this, when you give, don't let people know what's going on. He even goes so far as to say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Like keep it even from yourself. Don't be thinking about it yourself, what you were doing. Give in such a way to not be noticed because the things that you do in secret are known by the father who sees the things that are done in secret and he will reward you for it. But if in your giving that you're just looking for either positive uh, reinforcement from people or looking to avoid the negative reinforcement from people around you, then all you're doing, that that you've got in there, the positive reinforcement or the lack of negative reinforcement, that's your reward. That's all you get. In heaven, you get nothing for that gift. And in prayer, he goes along the same lines. Don't pray to be noticed. When fasting, he says, don't fast to be noticed, but instead do things in humility, knowing that you are not so special and that you're not the point. And so he continues on down and he ends with this line, you cannot serve two masters for you will love the one and hate the other. And then he ends in saying, you cannot love both God and money. Now, this brings us to our, what we're looking at this morning. And he starts to change it from the, the ways that we give, the ways that we do these things, the, the ways that we practice spirituality. And he starts to change it to talk about the ways that we interact with people, the ways that we interact with things that are, have been given to us, the things uh, in our lives that we need. He starts to look more at not just the internal spiritual aspect of it, but the external. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 25 through chapter seven, verse 12 together. And Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and the Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray and let's dig into this together this morning. Father, thank you so much. For gifting us the ability to rejoice over those who have responded to the gospel call and have taken that first step in obedience to be baptized. Uh, God, it is sweet and it is good. God, thank you for giving us wonderful songs that we can sing together, that we can proclaim these gospel truths to one another and be encouraged. And Father, thank you for your word that you ordained all of history to bring it to this point to where we will have this in front of us so that we may know your desires and uh, the things that you would have your people do. God, may we honor you in the ways that we proclaim and hear the word of God this morning. May we love you more and more. And may we as a church be a gospel light to our neighbors. You are so good. Thank you for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus starts this section off. And he starts by bringing forward 
the fact that we need to trust in God. He looks at the place of possessions in the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And where does he start? He starts by saying, don't be anxious about food. Don't be anxious about what you will need to eat tomorrow. Don't dwell on these things. Don't seek out the needs that you have so strongly that they cause you to worry about the things of tomorrow. And he gives us an example. He says, look to the birds. And he says they're fed, even though they don't work the ground, even though they don't toil the way that we do as humans. And yet they are fed, but they're not fed out of sheer luck. They're not fed out of the goodness of other people's hearts. They are fed by the heavenly father. And here, he, Jesus has been using this to talk about God, the Father, this term, the Heavenly Father, your Father in Heaven. He's been using it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but here he starts to focus in even more, talking about what it actually means that you have a Father in Heaven. And when he looks at the birds, he sees that the Heavenly Father takes care of them. What does he say? Are you not more valuable to the Father than they are? Now, this is something that I've read many, many times. This is something that hasn't often hit me. Because so often, uh, maybe you're in, in this as well, I, it's easy to have this overinflated sense of self. So maybe you look at that and you say, oh yeah, of course God values me more than the birds. But it's also easy to get to this underinflated sense of self. To where when we look at what Jesus had said about the sin, to when we look at these sorts of things, when Jesus talks about how we are evil, ultimately, and that we need someone else who can be more righteous than we are. It's easy, it's been easy for me to read this and just kind of gloss over it. But as I've developed a sense of understanding my own sinfulness, my own need for a savior, my own need for these things, it's finally started to hit me. Even in that, even though I'm a murderer, an adulterer, even though I make false oaths uh, that I can't possibly keep, even though I do all of these things, I am valuable to the Father. And that's something that when you have that right understanding of yourself and recognizing these things, it, cause, it should cause you to ask why. <laughs> There's no value in me on my own. It's clear in the scriptures. I'm wicked on my own. But it's through the work of his son, Jesus, that we are then able to see Jesus, uh, like in the Lord's Prayer, not just saying, my father in heaven, Jesus talking about himself, but rather our father in heaven. Isn't that wonderful to know that we can be brought into the family of God? That even in our sin, even in our desperation, even in the ways that we have committed cosmic treason against the creator of the universe, we can be brought into the family and welcomed in with the same benefits that Jesus himself has given to be able to call him Abba, Father. And in that, we are all the more valuable to the Lord. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's all because of what Christ has done. Jesus says, you can't add any time to your life by worrying. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Let's take care of today. There's enough worries for today. And let's look to the Father. 
So then he continues by saying, don't be anxious about your clothing. And he gives us another example. He says, look to the lilies, look to the flowers. Even, uh, even though they don't work, even though they don't weave clothing, even though they don't sew it together, they're clothed better than the richest king in the, all the history of Israel. They're given this magnificent uh, clothing. Why would the father who loves us all the more not do the same for us? For, those, for us as his children who are able, who live much longer lives than the flowers. The flowers within the span of a day can grow, they can dry out, and then they're tossed in the fire. For those of us who are the children of God and our lives are so much longer, does he not value us more? And is he not seeking to bless us more? Now, before anyone gets the wrong idea, this is not saying the same thing as the prosperity gospel says. The prosperity gospel, many of the preachers on TV will say this instead. They'll say, you do things for God so that he will do things for you. This isn't what we're saying. We're not saying that God has said, oh, ask me for anything. God, I want a Lamborghini. So God, give it to me, please. I've taken my kids to church. I've done all the right things. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that God has done everything for you already. And all you must do is ask him. And so for those of us who are found in Christ, we're his children. We are the ones that he has brought forward into new life. And if we need something, if we need food, if we need clothing, if we need any of these things, bring it to God. And ask him for his help. If you need more faith, plead with the Father and the Holy Spirit to provide that faith for you. If you need more understanding of the text, plead with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son to open up your mind so that you can understand the Bible more. It's said in the Bible that it's it's foolishness. And so the Holy Spirit brings us understanding. And so as you have the need of these things, ask the Father and he will give it to you gladly. And then we get to this point. That anxiety shows a lack of faith. It shows a lack of faith that the Father can and that the Father will take care of our needs. That's the main point, really, that Jesus is getting to here in this first section. It is really showing that we don't believe God is who he says he is when we have anxiety about the things that are coming up in our lives. We don't believe that God actually will take care of these things. And so we're anxious. We worry. We spend all of our time trying to plot and plan and take care of all these things in our own strength, and our own power. Instead of praying and asking the Lord to handle these things for us. So then Jesus reiterates, don't be anxious about what you are going to eat, what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. And he then makes a little bit of a jab. He says, the Gentiles worry about these things. The non-believers are the ones who worry about these things. When he's speaking to his Jewish audience, he's talking about, he's saying, we're not supposed to worry about these things because we have a heavenly father. But now also to us as Christians who are found in Christ, we shouldn't worry about these things because we have the heavenly father and the father knows his children's needs. Even before we ask, all we must do is ask. And then there's a very important qualifier that comes up in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And then all of these things will be given to you. It's not about the things that I want. 
It's about recognizing, I want what God wants on the earth. That, until that change is in your heart, the things that you're going to be asking of God are going to be selfish. They really are. Like that, there's, there's not really a way to get around that. But when we want the things that God wants, our requests start, stop being selfish and start being focused on bringing the glory of God's name to the ends of the earth, to our families and to our communities. It stops going from, God, just give me a sign, to God, show me how I can glorify you more. So with that qualifier, seek the kingdom of heaven first and then request these needs. To reorient your heart to desire the things that God desires and then request the things that you need to continue to make God's name known in all the earth. He is with you on that goal. And then we have a change as we turn over in the chapter. We start to look at the social relationship starting in chapter uh, 7. And there's this famous verse, don't judge, lest ye be judged. This is one of the favorites of our modern culture. Uh, if, you're, if you engage in any of these modern uh, engagements with, in social media and the internet, that's a favorite that people will bring forward if you try to bring forward any sort of truth from God's word. Uh, and sometimes, you know, like, sometimes they might have a little bit of a point, uh, but we'll get to that. The main thrust, the main idea that you hold on to here is don't put yourself in God's position as the ultimate authority. So let's, let's dig in and let's understand this. In verses one to two, judge not lest you be judged, right? For in the way that you judge others, you will be judged. In this context, it doesn't mean that we're not ever to judge ever. This context is not saying that we are not in the sense of a court determining right and wrong. We are not to sit back idly by while people say uh, things that are false about God. While people are careening their way to hell. We are to say boldly and with assurance. And that's all throughout the scriptures. You see it in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Philippians 3, 2, Galatians 6, 1, Hebrews 3, 13, 1 John 4, 1. All of these times saying, judge other people. And so the Bible, we need to use it to interpret itself. So this idea is not that we are to never declare that someone's living in sin, to never tell them that. In fact, that's a big part of what it means to be a member of a church is that we grow together. We see, if we see sin in one another, we call it out and encourage them toward more righteousness. And we do that in love so that we all can be a unified body and that we all can be sanctified to be made more like Christ in our lives and that we may contribute to that in the lives of each other. So what does this mean? This means though, we are not to be this final judge, this final authority declaring, ah, that person is gonna go to hell anyways. I don't really care. Or to just declare morality upon uh it means looking down on people. This judgment is looking down on people with a superior attitude, thinking that I am somehow better than they are. That's what this judging is. Don't look down on other people. Don't somehow think that you're better. If uh, someone cuts you off in the road, what is your attitude? I lived in Houston, and so uh, my driving got much more aggressive, and my attitude got a lot worse while I was driving. And yet, as I say, ah, that moron, you just cut me off. 
I'm judging. I'm, I'm looking down on them because how many times have I done the same thing to people? It's being a hypocrite that you're not supposed to be. And so the reason why this is such a big deal is because when we look down on other people, when we call them out on a sin, that speck in their eye, while we are dealing with that same sin in our lives and we're calling them out on that with no humility, when we're looking down on someone because of that, if we look down on someone because they got pregnant out of wedlock and yet we still let our eyes wander, you've got the log in your eye and you're looking down on someone that you have no right to look down on. And when you do that, what you are saying is that that person needs Jesus more than I do. And that's false. All of us need Jesus exactly the same. We need the gospel. If you are a Christian, you still need the gospel. You still need that good news in your life. You still need to dwell on that and think about it and be changed by it daily. So when we look down on others, when we judge them with this log in our eye, not realizing our own faults, not realizing how great our own need is for the Savior. I've brought it up many times before, the parable of the unforgiving servant. A servant owes what amounts to billions of dollars to his Lord. The Lord wants to throw him in prison. He says, please have mercy. And the Lord says, fine, I'll forgive your entire debt. Then that servant then goes to another servant who is his equal. And it was about $10,000. And he says, give me all of my money. And he says, I can't. Give me a little bit of time. Have mercy. And that first servant throws the second one in prison. He's like, until you can pay me back, you're going in prison. When the Lord found out what the first servant had done, he said, you wicked servant. Were you not forgiven much? How could you not forgive little? So in the same way, that is exactly what we're doing with this when we are looking down on people. We're forgetting how much we have been forgiven how much we need the Father, how much uh, we need Christ to to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we judge others unrighteously, we are saying we don't need Christ. That's ultimately what it is. So this is the kind of judging that we are not to be doing. And the reason why It's because you're going to be judged by God with the same parameters as what you have judged others. And so if you judge others in a hypocritical way, a way that you hold them to standards that you don't hold yourself to, God's going to hold you to those exact same standards and you will fall far short. And he will hold you to those standards outside of Christ. So relent of your judging. he says, don't be a hypocrite. If you see an issue that's going on with someone else and you're seeing it rightly, make sure that you are going to them in humility. Take that log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to in love remove that speck from your brother or sister's eye. It should be motivated by love, not motivated motivated by contempt when we go to our brothers and sisters to address them in their sin, when we look at those who are not Christians and we go to address their sin, we should be doing that in love and with a desire for them to know Christ. Not forgetting how much we have been forgiven. So judge then 
with righteousness so that you can help others. Don't put yourself in the position of authority that only God can hold. But don't be afraid to proclaim the truth. And don't be afraid to do it in love. We've seen, just this morning, and we've seen in the lives of other church members as well, what family members proclaiming the truth to their family can do. We can win brothers and sisters to Christ. So may we do that with all sincerity, with all joy, and with all humility, recognizing who we are as well. And then he continues and calls us to use discernment, to judge rightly. He says, don't offer holy things to people who don't, who don't, who don't, who won't accept it well. If they have rejected it, if they are unwilling to listen to it, don't offer those holy things. And as I was thinking through this, I, there are a couple of things that I wanted to bring forward. What are some of the holy things we can give? Most people are agreed that the gospel is one of those holy things that we can give. And so if we present the gospel to someone and they just ridicule it, they reject it outright, we don't have to keep going back in that sense. Pray for them. And as opportunities arise, continue to plant and water that seed and till that ground as much as you are able to. But don't waste all of your time and energy on those who have made it clear that they reject Christ. Seek for those who will respond. Seek for those seeds that take root that we can cultivate and help to grow. So the gospel is one. Uh, the next one that is a holy thing that we should not give to those who are going to despise it is baptism. There is a reason why uh, as Bill and Darlene came forward and wanting to be members and wanting to be baptized, that I took time. We, we met over the course of uh, over a month in a couple of like three or four different meetings. We took time to do these things because there's a time of testing, a time of um, making sure that they understand what it is that they're committing to, making sure what they understand what baptism is. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not going to baptize young children. They're not going to understand these things. And we can't know that there has been a change. We can't see whether there has been a change in their life. And so when we offer baptism, we don't do it willy-nilly. We seek for signs that they truly have been regenerated so that we may baptize people with all assurance uh, that we can have that we are not offering what is holy to the dogs and that we're not offering pearls before swine who will just trample it into the ground. And then the third thing ties in, it's a second ordinance that we recognize is the Lord's Supper, which we are taking today and we're joyful to be able to welcome Bill and Darlene to join us in that uh, as they have been baptized and are uh, joining our church. But the Lord's Supper is something that is sacred to us. It's not, it's not in the same way that uh, the Catholics will talk about it the, to where they will say that as we take the Lord's Supper, our sins are being forgiven but it is sacred in recognizing that this is, as we do this, there is some supernatural sense into where we are coming into communion with Christ, but not in the physical sense in the same way that um, is often expressed in more of the high church uh, churches. But this is a sacred thing that we are to take very seriously. All throughout the scriptures, it talks about how serious the Lord's Supper is. And so we don't offer these things willy-nilly. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, I will say 
if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't taken these steps of obedience, then please refrain. Re- respect the sacredness that we, are, uh, uh, that we are doing. And the reason for that is just to try to help fence that table just a little bit to help make sure that we are not doing this out in a way that's spiteful to Christ. So then I'm going to do something I don't typically do, but I'm going to jump down to uh, the very last verse, to jump to verse 12. And what the structure of this is, is it's going from social relationships to social relationships. And in between that, it's kind of sandwiching it in. And uh, anyways, from a literary perspective, that sandwich, the, the social relationships and social relationships, all that is is just saying that section is ended. So we're going to the golden rule really quickly, and then we're going to go back to the other uh, verses 7 through 11. The golden rule is simply how are God's people supposed to treat one another? There's a lot of famous verses in this sermon. Uh, swine, don't put your pearls before swine. Don't uh, judge not lest you be judged. And then the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's simply recognizing if we are to act rightly, think about the ways that we would want to be treated righteously. And then let's do that to others, whether or not they do that for us. There's no, there is no stipulation there that says, well, if they do it for you, then you do it back. You do it unto others as you would want them to do to you. And he says, this is the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets, he's basically saying, this is the Old Testament. This is everything that has been commanded in the Old Testament. When you're looking at social relationships, do what is right to your neighbors, to those who are around you. So now, jumping back to verse seven, we're gonna look at prayer. And in this, Jesus gives us three imperatives, three commands in a sense. He says, ask, seek, knock. And as we are going to the Father with our needs, he says, to receive, you gotta ask. If you want something, You need to ask. If you need something, you got to ask. And as a church body, together as well, if you need something, please ask. Please let us know so that we can come alongside you as the body of Christ. We want to. We have intentionally created the means to be able to come alongside people as they have needs. And he says, in order to find anything, you have to seek. You have to put, you have to Put in some effort. If you wish to understand the scriptures better, if you wish to understand these things, you have to seek. Seek the knowledge of the Lord. Do it by prayer. Do it by studying. Do it by uh, engaging with those who have had more time and more mature in their faith. Those who have put the effort into studying, who have already sought. If you need help learning how to seek, they can teach you how to seek. Don't be afraid to do those things. Don't be afraid to come to me if you have questions, if you have needs. Please. And to have the door open to you, you've got to knock. The point is, the Heavenly Father cares for you. He wants to give you good gifts. But there is this need to ask of the Father in prayer. And He wants to be able to grant these things. Which of us, as parents... When our kids come forward wanting something that you can tell is going to bring them a lot of joy, even though you know that they're going to throw it out in like a week. Which of us are like, no, I don't want to give my child good gifts. As my 
own fathers become a grandfather, we keep getting new and more and more little gifts for our kids. There's a great joy in giving good things to our children and our grandchildren. Isn't there? Do you not think that that joy was placed there by our Heavenly Father? He is good and he takes the same joy in giving good gifts to his children. And Jesus says, no evil father, by Jesus' standards, which means all of us who uh, evil parents are all of us. All of us are evil in comparison to God when he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. None of us, even though we're evil, would give evil gifts to our children. How much more so will the good heavenly father in heaven give good gifts? There's a story about Alexander the Great and one of his generals. Now, I'm no Alexandrian scholar. Uh, I heard this from a pastor, and he probably got, gathered it from a book as I did my little quick study into this to try to find the source. All I could find was another pastor's book uh, that tells this story. So I'm not telling you whether this is true or not, but it is a good story. So Alexander had a general who had served him faithfully for many, many years. And that general came to Alexander saying, my daughter is going to get married, and I've been faithful you faithful to you all these years, would you be willing to pay for her wedding? And Alexander looks at his general and he's like, sure, go to the treasurer and make, uh, make known your need to him. Uh, just request it of him, whatever you need, just ask him and he'll give it to you. Now, it wasn't very long before that treasurer came up to Alexander. And he's like, I think we have a problem. Your general, he asked for a lot of money. Like you, you don't understand. The amount of money that he asked for would mean the best and biggest wedding that all of Greece has seen ever. He's asked for a lot of money. And Alexander thinks about it for a second. And he kind of just waves it off. And he's like, you know what? Give him everything he's asked for. The treasurer is like, but sir, you're being taken advantage of. He's like, no, no, no. I'm being complimented for two reasons. One, he thinks that I'm wealthy enough to be able to afford this wedding. And the second one, he assumes that I am generous enough to be willing to give him all of this. In doing that, he honors me greatly. Dear brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to assume the wealth and generosity of your Father in heaven. Don't be afraid to ask to seek and to knock. He has already given you so much in his son and yet he invites you to continue to ask for anything you need. It is not presumption to ask him to supply our needs. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, that is part of what we are told to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Give us our needs for today, our physical needs. How sweet it is to know that we have access to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, that we have been given those same benefits as sons and daughters of God. How sweet it is to know that we have a good heavenly Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children and who cares for his children deeply. You're not an embarrassment to the Father. When you sin, he's not shocked. 
And the only thing he asks of you is to believe that his son is who he says he is. So for those of us who are found in Christ, who do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who sometimes we might struggle with understanding and believing that God actually cares for us, be reminded this morning that he cares for you. He wants to give you good things. He wants to give you good gifts. And if you've put your faith in Christ alone, and that is made clear through your changing desires and your changing actions, you can rest easy knowing that your heavenly Father will take care of you. And that even if that means our death comes upon us, that the heavenly Father has good plans for us. And that we will be given something far greater. The righteousness that we so dearly need has already been given to us by Christ. So continue to have the faith to believe that your Heavenly Father can and will give you good gifts. If you don't believe that, plead with the Father to give you faith. Plead with Him. He wants to give you those things. And even as you don't believe it, plead with him. Talk to some of your brothers and sisters who are here. Let them know so that they can, can plead with you, that they can encourage you, that we can pray together. We have been given so great a gift. It'd be a shame if we just left that to the side because we were so ultimately prideful in our shame that we would not go to the Father asking, seeking, and knocking. May we love and serve our Heavenly Father with great joy for all of our lives. And may we not be afraid of Him. May we assume His wealth and His generosity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for all the good gifts you have given us. Father, thank you that you have welcomed us into your family. Thank you that the punishment for sin you took upon yourself because you did care for us so much that you would not hold back even your own son. Father, through his perfect life, through his taking on your full wrath against the sin of those who would trust in him. Through his death and his resurrection three days later, showing that you had vindicated him and that what he had said was true. And then, Father, through his ascension, where he is now at your right hand, interceding for us. It's through Jesus Christ. It's that we can pray in his name and come before you as your children. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us, even in our sin, even in our treason. And not only 
Are you willing to forgive it to where we can come and be your servants? But Father, you forgive us and welcome us in as sons and daughters. Thank you. Lord, may you be glorified in our time. Jesus, may you be glorified in our time this morning as we uh, take the Lord's Supper together. As we add two more to the fold who are able to join us in this. Father, thank you for all these good gifts. Jesus, be glorified in the ways that we take this communion together. You are so good. You are so faithful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.